Welcome to DTX Equals, where thought leaders in digital therapeutics put a stake in the ground on what makes DTX, DTX. As an extra bonus, today we have the Acacia Just Got Braces and Hasn't Learned to Talk With Them Yet edition. With me today is Amber Trivedi, COO of Blue Ant Therapeutics, which is a DTX company serving digital mental health care to cancer patients. Before that, she was COO of Informed DNA in an origin story not unlike my own, starting as employee number four. I think I was number five at Happify slash 12. So glad to have you here with us today, Amber, and welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Acacia. It's a pleasure. I can't wait to sit down and get into it. So question number one, what is a formative event in your life or career that influenced your path in DTX? There are two times that stand out to me and both really have to do with making an impact. So my background and training as, as a licensed genetic counselor, and I went into the field because of the desire to make a difference in people's lives, as most people in healthcare do. And as a cancer genetic counselor, it was incredibly rewarding to help people navigate through what was really one of the absolute worst times in their lives when they were getting a cancer diagnosis and really being worried how this affected their future risk and their family. Um, and so that was really wonderful for me to experience that one-on-one -on -one impact. And while that was a really amazing experience, my subsequent work that was developing medical coverage policies for national payers and really looking at how to create sensible criteria to make sure the people who needed care had it covered for them, that created a completely different sense of impact. It didn't have that uh, personal one-on-one -on -one connection, but it was really incredible to make a difference for an entire population across the nation. And so it's the combination of those two experiences that really made me be, feel really passionate about digital health because of that concept of making a very personal impact, but at an incredible scale. And that impact is not limited by human availability or geographic access to experts. So I was really moved by the concept that digital health doesn't just make healthcare more convenient, but if it's done right, it can really increase the opportunity for equity and making healthcare uh, accessible just through your mobile phone by those who need it most. Um, so I don't know if this is a, 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 trans, a change in subject or not, but um, for you, DTX equals what? Like, what's the most defining issue of DTX today? Well, I think it's actually a great segue from what you just said, because I think DTX really gives us the opportunity to have healthcare as a lifestyle. And it's the ability to experience it as something that's convenient, maybe even fun, uh, consumer experience. So apps and wearables today have really been viewed as fun toys. And DTX has the opportunity to make healthcare feel fun because it uses a modality that patients already associate with fun and without the stigma. And I think so many people traditionally feel that healthcare is scary or onerous. And if you make it fun and convenient, that can really be the tipping point to normalize those preventive health habits. But underlying this, really, I think it's the a driving factor is reimbursement, reimbursement, reimbursement. Uh, because people just will not take advantage of things in our healthcare system the way it works. Uh, patients won't use things, doctors won't prescribe medicines or any therapies that aren't covered by insurance. 
And we're really suffering from so much financial toxicity in the U.S. healthcare system today. And so we can't actually realize the power of DTX until we figure out the reimbursement issue. And this is really a classic case where the technology has leapfrogged past the policy. And I truly believe payers and regulators want to promote innovation, um, but these industries are traditionally slow moving and it's gonna take some time and very dedicated attention to reconcile how this innovation can really match with our traditional of safety and efficacy evaluation. So let's, uh, I wanna go back to fun a little bit later, but um, to, to follow mm-hmm. this, uh, this thread, how much of the uh, of the problems with uh, DTX getting reimbursed do you think are around pricing? Um, so, you know, we don't yet know, like, what's the right price. Um, and so t- do you think that prices are being set too high? Or do you think that healthcare needs to adjust to understand that these things cost this much and that and we should do that? It's probably a combination of both. I think, you know, if you look at all the different eras, Um, From in the 80s, it was prescription drugs. In the 90s, it was radiology. More recently, it's been genomics and personalized medicine. And you see, uh, you know, volatile uh, range in pricing going up and down. How can manufacturers actually get paid for the value that they're bringing to the healthcare system? Because if they don't get reimbursed for the value, you're not going to have innovation that's going to drive that. But at the same time, uh, you know, when we were uh, looking at fee-for-service and then now trying to transition to more value-based care, uh, fee-for-service often drove prices that were too high just because you could. And it took some time to really find out what is the right price. Um, And the data and the evidence uh, doesn't give us a clear picture right now to say what should be the right price. And so we're in this uh, high growing evidence generation stage so we can find what is the, the right price. You know, it's funny because I've noticed that around pricing that um, in some places there's this uh, price on uh, pre-existing things that are paid for by your health plan where I look at something like, really, it costs $600 for that visit to my doctor, right? So when my doctor is getting reimbursed um, or, you know, it might be a lot, but then when it time, comes time to say, well, how much money am I saving by using this digital therapeutic? They're like, well, it's $100 an hour for a doctor. But like, that's not what it is. <laughs> so it's almost right, like, right. This moving, like this moving marker where depending on uh, who's who's trying to crunch these numbers, it's uh, almost like we joke, I have chickens. It's like chicken math. It's like, you're just trying to figure out like, how can I like get myself to buy these like pet chickens? <laughs> but it's like, it's not real math. So how do we, how do we make sense of, or um, start to have real conversations about what healthcare costs in a world where a lot of the prices are inflated? Um, and then on the other side, no, people are not wanting to pay the prices that we have to charge. That's very true. And it's interesting to see how we're going to navigate to the right pricing, because right now, when there's so much unknown, clinical trials and getting the evidence costs a lot of money. And so if you want manufacturers to invest in getting the right evidence, and getting the, the data and the trials to prove it, uh, there is going to need to be a higher reimbursement up front. Now, once you have that evidence 
and then it's just about scaling and tweaking what these digital medicines are, then that's a different story. And, you know, there are economies of scale, but today there are not. And so I think it's not fair to expect that uh, manufacturers can offer things uh, when you're assuming economies of scale, unless you're locking into long-term reimbursement models where they know that the, the uh, cost of the clinical trials and generating the evidence is eventually going to pay off. Yeah, I was thinking about that with some of the more Euro the European models we've been um, hearing emerge more and more of, well, at a relatively early evidence stage, we'll give you a shot and then you have a certain amount of time to actually show up with the full evidence. But then you've got the proof point, you know, people are more likely to invest in you, things are getting paid for at some scale. So, uh, you know, it almost seems like this is this is especially a U.S. centric problem. Um, where other yes. countries are starting to at least explore uh, other ways to, to get around this. But for us, it's like, nope, you've got to bring all the evidence, more evidence, more evidence uh, with no sense that you're going to succeed or like no, no uh, uh, goalposts along the way to say like, well, you've made it this far. <laughs> Yes, it is a, a tough a loop that we're caught in here. Um, and I do feel we're on the tipping point to solving it. Uh, everyone seems to have a shared goal to solve it. Uh, just when we will reach that is, is still unknown. So how important do we feel it is, uh, you and me today, um, that there's a person involved? Um, are there places where we feel that healthcare can be disentangled from a human provider? Um, or are we talking more about, uh, and I know, I know where you stand for the, the type of product you're building, that there are some things that we can certainly build into a product. Um, but where do we feel um, that non-human DTX models really shine? Um, and that the fun part made me think of that, right? Because I think that that might be part of it. Like, it, does fun actually mean like there's no doctor because doctors aren't fun? <laughs> like, I don't know. Are those are those part of the same uh, coin there? Like, is it fundamentally? Um, yeah. So uh, does, does um, more doctor or less doctor is sort of one continuum and more fun and less fun is another continuum. Like, is there a relation there? Yes, yes. Uh, so I guess first on the, the question about how important is a human, I think that's a really interesting topic that um, makes many providers uncomfortable right now, because there is this fear that digital is going to replace humanity. And I think that is not possible, practical, or preferable at this point. Um, and humans shouldn't be replaced, but we should be expected to practice at the top of our license. And guess what? Maybe we also can encounter uh, and deal with the more challenging, complex, and interesting things. And many of the things that are um, commonplace or rote or really do apply to a large population, the 80% rule, I think that's where uh, digital really makes a difference. You know, as uh, a genetic counselor, um, I, there were many patients, half of my session was saying the exact same thing over and over. And then I had limited time to really dive into the details that were personal to that patient. And that's where digital can, uh, you know, do the basics with most patients so that when they do get to talk to a provider, they're actually getting incredibly personalized care that the provider can focus just on them. Um, so in some ways, maybe that will make healthcare when they are talking to a doctor feel more personal because it is all about them. And maybe at that point it will be fun. 
I love that. I love that idea of sort of taking away some of the things that make make healthcare intimidating, right? It's like all the paperwork, all yes. the rep- repetition, all the weird robotic conversations with people. It's like, well, if you take that away and all you have are like two humans talking and one of them happens to have medical expertise, uh, maybe you start to feel like that's a place that you go on purpose. Right, right. And I like your comment too about, you know, what's intimidating and that digital interaction does feel so much safer and on your own terms. And if we can leverage some of the fun things that are in consumer technology and start incorporating that into healthcare, that can help blend, uh, you know, the experience of uh, interesting, fun things that consumers do to go out, use their technology with and make healthcare feel like more a part of that and something that will be easier to incorporate into their lifestyle talk to their family and friends about and um, just have less stigma overall. Yeah, I love this idea of uh, of people making it part of their lifestyle, right? I think that's something that um, many of us have been trying to do in digital health and digital therapeutics for quite some time now, and it's a tough nut to crack. Um, Behavior change is hard, and it's even harder when you're just like out here and you're sort of making an app which you hope is going to meet a person and it's going to make them want to do a behavior. You know, there's just a really large divide versus, say, you know, a physical trainer in a gym watching you do the exercises, right? So um, trying to find this way that apps can uh, potentially, because they are with you all all the time um uh, they're not going to see you every three months they're <laughs> with you every day um having that ability to to turn uh turn on sustainable behavior it's tough but um it's a really important one as well so that um mm-hmm. maybe that was your answer for this last question but now we'll uh, we'll either double click on that or go to whatever uh whatever you had in mind in your wildest dreams what's something dtx will be able to do in the future that it cannot do today So it's definitely not ready for prime time yet, but I would love to see us harness the power of AI for DTX. So unlike, you know, drugs and biologics that require distribution, many digital therapeutics are incredibly safe. And if we had the right infrastructure, they could very easily be distributed in an automated way. And we're seeing the power of AI right now. Um, So it's not hard to imagine where AI could help identify who needs digital therapies. I could see it being integrated into different EHRs and healthcare systems where it would search all the data and automatically prescribe and deliver these therapies through push notifications and then integrate with the higher touch care that patients receive from their providers. Um, but there's a lot of incredibly exciting and really scary things that are happening with chat GPT and things right now. So we need to, as a society, understand how we are going to approach AI before, you know, diving into incorporating into healthcare more deeply. But I think there's so much potential there. I am very energized by this idea of um, essentially creating an algorithm for diagnosis that runs all on its own and then, um, you know, becomes the, the mechanism by which at least, you know, like enforcement discretion level, but maybe even prescription level digital therapeutics, which are low risk. So like if you, if it, if there are errors, we're not thinking about like people dying or <laughs> any of these, um, you know, horrible events. It's like, you know, there's this great potential testing ground can make it so that doctors do not have to spend their time doing a checklist and then writing an extra thing or typing an extra thing, which has been a huge barrier in DTX, right? It's just adding the extra process. Absolutely. Um, but instead to just, you know, 
when they see a patient have a checklist of like, here are three things you could consider checking this checkbox and uh, giving to the patient, right? I'd like you to consider these three things, go. Um, or uh, as you noted, to just have them be disseminated and like, let's see what happens. Um, but that's amazing. I think that's such a great, you know, you hear about these, um, as a researcher, I'm very um, interested in chat GPT's um, potential functionality for doing a literature review, right? You want to know like, what's the state of the literature yes. on this? And like the first, the first lit searches people did, they got back fictitious references, like completely invented references. I don't know why it would it just, why wouldn't it just not reference something? I don't know, but it references, you know, things that papers that never happened, but that look real. Tweak it a little bit. And before you know it, you've got an actual comprehensive review of the literature. It's really good. So yes, knowing amazing. that, you know, like so much as possible and having for me just seen that that was a few weeks of people playing around with prompts to get it right, to do something that takes 30 hours for a research assistant to do, um, to just do in a prompt. If that's possible, imagine what's possible with the idea you just described, just piloting algorithms right. and seeing whether our hit rate is any good. Like, that's not a question of if it will work. It's a question of how long it will take to perfect it. Right, right. And the collaboration between so many stakeholders. I think that's one thing that does make us uniquely distinct as a country when you have the level of federal and then state and then so many different regional uh, regulators. Um, and uh, since we have different health systems and different payers, there are divided interests. So I think we are, we are getting closer, but it is gonna require more intentional collaboration uh, in our country than it might in other places. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> and on, on that note, we are out of time. Thank you so much, Amber Trevetti from Blue Note Therapeutics for joining us today on DTX Equals. See you all next time.